I would say to reach down and find enough curiosity and enough passion and enthusiasm to help someone as much as you would want to be helped if you have recovery. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. On today's episode of the Share Podcast, Amber Leone Murphy, the founder of Can't Keep a Sober Girl Down and the author of Crushing Codependency, shares with us her incredible battle with alcoholism. Amber, now nine years sober, started drinking at eight years old, sneaking sips of beer from leftover beer cans at family parties. At age 13, her grandmother dies and the heavy drinking begins. Throughout high school, Amber's parents move around a lot and with every new high school come a new set of drinking buddies she would gravitate towards. For over 10 years, Amber's alcoholism would gradually get worse and worse. Drinking on the job, public intoxication, arrested for a DUI, and sleeping in her car, Amber finally hits rock bottom when she moves to New York and ends up in an alcoholic blackout throughout all of 9-11. When she comes out of the fog, the guilt and shame lead her to recovery. Today, Amber is a public speaker, an author, an artist, and an entrepreneur. It's an amazing journey of recovery. Join us now. And after this interview, if you enjoyed listening to the Share Podcast, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. This will ensure we get ranked well on these networks, and that means more people will easily find the Share Podcast. This is the best way to show your support and help us grow. Now back to the show. Hello, Amber. Hi, this is Omar. This is Omar. Hello, you have a California number. (laughs) Well, ironically enough, I'm from California. Oh, okay, perfect. Uh, Born and raised in uh, Pasadena, I guess you can say L.A. Oh, okay, okay. I used to live in Burbank years and years ago, so I would drive from L.A. to Burbank when I worked down there, but, or from, um, sorry, from Washington State to L.A. <laughs> you drive, You would drive all the way down to Burbank from Washington? Yeah, I was crazy. That, mm-hmm. What were you doing, like uh, transporting kilos of weed or something? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was a literary agent. Okay. So, right. yeah. <laughs> this is prior? So, um, yeah, this is when I was married and my... My ex-husband worked in the Navy on a naval base in Washington State on Whidbey Island in Washington. So I and I worked out of an agency in uh, Hollywood, and so I would drive down until we actually moved there. I would make many trips up and down, and yeah, it's pretty pretty wild. I got, <laughs> all right, all right, I got gotcha. you. And you're in Costa Rica. I am. I'm in Costa Rica. I've been here for 16 years. I'm so envious. <laughs> Everybody says that. In a good way. In a good way. No, of course. <laughs> you know, our, our lives today are envious in a good way. All right. I think you're warmed up. Are you ready to get started? I am. I am. Awesome. All right. So let's, let's get cracking over here. So, you know, one of the things that I noticed about the Facebook page is that you said, the only thing I enjoy more than watching people's faces shine as they grow and change in recovery is hearing their stories. And Mm -hmm. the Share Podcast is all about inspiring recovery stories. So when you wrote that, at what point in your recovery did you write that? It was about seven and a half years in. Okay. All right. This is when, so when you, when you first launched the can't keep a sober girl down, right? Yep. I wanted people to know my intention of the website. It wasn't for any kind of um, purpose of fame. It wasn't for any other reason than to just share. So I'm assuming this, this, when did you launch? Because uh, you've got two. You've got can't keep a sober girl down and can't keep a codependent girl down, right? That's correct. Mm-hmm. And yeah, when did I you start these? I started in March of 2014, I believe. Okay. And how much, how much clean time do you have and what's your anniversary date? I got, uh, I have nine years sober time and 
uh, clean and sober since November 7th of 2005. Excellent, excellent. By the grace of God. And so just tell us a little bit about Amber Leone here. Give us a little bit of, uh, tell us a little bit about your websites and why you're doing this and what you're passionate about. Okay. Um, well, I'm Minnesota, born and raised, I believe, in family and uh, love and prospering with love and family. Uh, that's just like, I guess, who I am. Um, I believe uh, that there is a loving God, which I choose to call my higher power, God, and and I ask to be a conduit of his love. So I believe I'm that as well uh, on a daily basis. That's what I ask for. Um, because there's no way that I can go out into the world and take from it if I ask my higher power, God, to be a conduit of love. So I guess that's just how I view myself. So with, uh, I mean, can't, can't Keep a Sober Girl Down actually derived from a place of great pain. <laughs> um, not very surprising to most. I think a lot of great things come from pain. Um, but I was uh, in a place where I didn't feel seen, heard, or understood in my life um, by some of the closest people. I just felt frustrated over I felt like I was making the wrong choices. I wasn't, uh, I was really in my head, you know, the committee in my head was just rampant at that time in my life. Um, and that's, spring of uh, 2014, and I was frustrated. I was selfish. I wasn't getting what I wanted um, when I wanted it, and I was angry because I wasn't getting what I wanted when I wanted it. Right. And I remember I continuously called my sponsor in recovery, and I was like, I, I feel like I'm dying here. I don't know what to do. And she was like, sounds like you need some more sponsees. You need to start working with some um, addicts and alcoholics. And I was really frustrated with her. I was just like, come on, there's got to be a different way to feel better. <laughs> and she would always give me the same answer. And so, you know, I would go out and, and I, because I had never sponsored, I, I never felt like I had anything to offer, honestly. Hold on, hold on, um, hold on. People, hold on, hold on. What? Let me get this straight. So you yeah. had you were in seven years, seven years yeah. into sobriety, and you didn't feel yeah. like you had something to give back? Nope. Mm. Okay, continue. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> nope, I didn't. Um, I, I had just started sponsoring in my seventh year of sobriety. And I was very nervous about it um, because I, I realized in my sixth year that I knew nothing. I had a spiritual awakening in my sixth year of sobriety, and I realized that I, I was so heady uh, for years about life, and I thought I knew everything. And then at six years, I realized I, I hardly knew anything, and I was extremely humbled by that experience. But I would constantly take my will back, if that makes sense. Like, um, oh, so yeah. yeah. So it was just a it was a journey of constantly um, taking my will back, honestly, and and really struggling to get out of myself to help another person. So for that, for my sponsor to say that that's the solution, that that's the answer. If I want to feel better, go make somebody else feel better. If I want to be happy, help somebody else be happy. If I want results in my life, help someone else have results in theirs. I, I just, you know, it's opposite world, and I didn't get it. I love I where the, I and, love where this is going. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so um, when I started to reach out to women, it was before actually before the can't keep us work on started, but it was just before then. Um, I started to really reach out to some women. And I, I could see their faces change, like I talk about on the page, on my on my website. I could literally see the transformation happening, and I cared. And it wasn't the first time I cared, but I had forgotten. And it, I just I was so compelled. I, I couldn't stop helping 
other women. And at the time I had, um, I remember, <laughs> I remember in my first like couple of, it was within the first couple of months that I started, I can't keep a sober girl down blog. It was just a blog. I hadn't even put it on Facebook for another right. like nine months or something like that. But, um, I was swimming in my pool and I was listening to Alicia Keys. This girl is on fire. You know that song, <laughs> This Girl is on Fire. And I was like, yeah. And then I was like, how many other women like feel like this? And I really just started to tap into we're all connected. Like there's no separation unless I create that. Right. And it's not just women that had reached out. It was men too. And you know, I, I, I'm not, I've never been a woman against man or feminist or anything like that. I just was sharing my own experience, strength, and hope as a girl, as a woman. So that's why I call it Can't Keep a Sober Girl Down. And, you know, uh, I guess that's, it just took off from there. And then it's play, it's art play. And I love creativity. And my, one of my first sponsors, she said that God works through creativity. And I didn't get that. I didn't understand what that meant until later on when I started to see uh, my higher power as God as, a, as the ultimate creator. And then I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I want to tap into that. And so for, for me, words, connection, and art, um, creativity, and meditation, all is like, it's such a beautiful part of everyday living so I want to live like God on a daily basis, and I want to help as many people as I can in this process. I love it. I love it. So now that we have an idea of where Can't Keep a Sober Girl Down came from, and we've got a really good idea of who Amber is today, it's time to go back into the past, a little Amber. Are you ready? Okay. I am. <laughs> All right. So now... How old were you the first time you drank or used drugs? And more importantly, how did they make you feel? Do cinnamon sticks count? Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) They might. What kind of a mood of Malta? What did it do to you? That's terrible. I just remembered when I was a kid, like, searching for something to smoke (laughs) in the cupboards. But no, no, really, my first sip of beer I was eight years old Oh wow! and I was, I, I remember it was in a pink plastic cup and just a little bit of beer. And it was given to me from a family loved one and I wanted more. And she had said, no, <clears throat> excuse me. And I was angry <laughs> that I couldn't have more because the feeling, the rush of a, a high almost came over me. And my ears got hot. My chest was hot. Um, and and it, I was warm. And I felt a bit more courageous than my introverted shy self. And that was my first, that was my first sip of alcohol. Wow. You're really connected. You're really connected. I love it. I, eight years old. I don't really even remember what I was doing at eight years old. But to be able to <laughs> connect with that... It really uh-huh. helps you rewind that tape, you know, whenever right. you need to access that information. So you're more than warmed up. So I'm going to turn this show over to you, Amber. It's time for you to share your story, the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life, when you hit rock bottom, and finally your journey into recovery up until today. So Amber, take it away. Okay, so from that moment of um, taking the sip from the pink plastic cup when I was eight years old, I remember how good it felt, and I remember that um, into the year of being 13 years old when my grandmother had passed away, and I was at a family member's house, and um, I was actually visiting, because at the time my family lived in Montana, but we're from Minnesota, and I was visiting in Minnesota because my grandmother had passed away. And I looked up at the top of the fridge, and there was a big bottle of vodka. And I just intuitively knew, and maybe I had seen it several times prior, um, what to do with that. And so I found some orange juice and poured 
um, the vodka into the glass with the orange juice and kept refilling and talking to my mother on the phone, just belligerently drunk. And that was my first blackout experience. I don't remember what I said. I just remember crying and blubbering and not making much sense and filling the <laughs> filling the vodka bottle with water because I didn't <laughs> want to get into trouble. <laughs> I don't know how many times I did that. Um, hopefully she never breathes it, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, uh, I don't remember the next morning. I don't remember how that was, or I didn't have any consequences from it. I guess my, um, first consequence was with, uh, marijuana when I was, uh, 14 the following year. I had been smoking quite a bit of pot as much as I could get my hands on. I remember, first of all, let me rewind a little bit. When my grandmother passed away, I wrote in my diary, and I still have that diary to this day, and it said, I want some marijuana, weed, or Mary Jane, or liquor, beer, something like that. And I mean, I, I was very descriptive of all these different, you know, like a 13, 14 year old kid. I was on a mission. I was calling it all its names. Wow. <laughs> I really, I mean, just knew that that's, I, I didn't want, nor did I know how to deal with the way I felt. When my grandmother passed away, we were very, very, very close. Right. And um, started smoking pot uh, when I was 14. And very quickly, I, I handed it to a friend in, in Stevensville, Montana. I lived in Stevensville, Montana at the time, a very small town, like 2,000, maybe a little bit more people in the Bitter Valley there, beautiful valley. And uh, and <laughs> handed it to a friend and on school property. And uh, and I got turned into the police from my friend's mother, and I'm so grateful for that now. But at the time, <laughs> I was really angry. Of I was course. very upset that she turned me in. Um, so I literally remember walking. Okay, I my routine was I smoke pot during the week, and I party with booze on the weekend. That was my routine by the time I was 14. Um, and. That morning that I got into trouble, I actually had woken up and I didn't smoke pot before school, which was usual, my regular routine, but for some reason I was probably running late and didn't have enough time. So I get to school and I'm in wood shop or something like that class and woodworking or something and shop class and the drug counselor comes in and I'm like, oh no. So I, I, I reached for my pocket. I'm looking for my pipe. I'm looking for my pot. I can't find it. I can't find my lighter even. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Did I leave it in my freaking locker? Because they call in the dogs, you know, uh-huh. in, uh, in Stevensville, Montana. Because there, you know, there were a lot of, there, there's a lot of drug busts even in small towns like that in the 90s. So, um, so I'm, I'm paranoid already and I'm not even high. And the drug counselor comes up straight up to me and says, Amber, how are you doing today? And he's looking at my eyes. I say, I'm good. And he's like, why don't you come to the um, principal's office with me? We have something to discuss. And I'm like, oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> so I get to the principal's office. And, um, and I, uh, you know, a little freshman, and get to the principal's office. And here is the town sheriff. Sitting in the principal's chair, his name, I won't tell you, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep anonymity here for the sheriff. We'll keep anonymity, yes. And, um, and the principal is standing, and the sheriff, town sheriff is in the chair. And he said, Amber, do you know why you've been called in here today? And I said, no. And he was like, Amber, this is about marijuana. And I was like, oh, no. And I instantly started crying. <laughs> I started bawling, you know, just... Uh, feeling, you know, I don't know. I was so scared. I was trembling. And I really didn't want them to call my parents. Really didn't, but they had to. And um, my mom comes down there, and I'll never forget it. I'll never forget her face. And she looked at me, and she said, 
you're not some pothead. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, Mama. years later, she told me, that was for show. That was for show. Amber, I knew you were going to experiment. I was kind of disappointed in you, but it wasn't that big of a deal. They were making a huge deal out of it. She was like, but I talked to you about it after. And, um, so, it was, uh, but I never wanted to smoke pot after that. And, uh, and so, I went back to my original drug of choice, alcohol, mm-hmm. for um, feeling like I fit in. Now, all the time that I had spent smoking pot in my freshman year, I had started hanging out with stoners. I was part of the stoners clubs and groups and parties. And now, now all my friends are gone. So I got to start doing something bad because no one's hanging around me. They call me, they're calling me goody, goody two shoes. And I'm really consumed. I'm just totally and completely aware of how people are not paying attention to me or seeing me or talking to me. And I am nervous in my own skin. So alcohol alleviated that for me because I didn't know how to be courageous and I didn't know how to love myself. Right. Um, <clears throat> so turned to the party lifestyle and uh, in alcohol and kegger parties and hang out with football players and um, always being, feeling like a nerd, feeling like I wasn't part of um, subjecting myself to gross and humane kind of behavior um, when it came to, you know, guys and uh, and any kind of relationship. I think my whole diary was about, oh, I, I love this person today or I hate this person. How could he do that? And just obsessed with the boys, absolute obsession with trying to be loved. And I was loved by my parents, absolutely. But for some reason, that wasn't good enough. And I wanted, I wanted that affection from my peers. So I moved back to Minnesota from Montana my sophomore year of high school. My um, parents had relocated to Grand Junction, Colorado and given me the option to come and live with my grandpa and finish high school in Minnesota in the northern suburbs of the Twin Cities um, with my cousins who I grew up with or go out to Colorado with people that I didn't know. Well, of course, that was an easy option for me, so I chose my grandfather, who I love dearly. And um, But I was really excited also that he went to bed at 6 p.m. so I could do whatever I wanted. Yeah. However I wanted, whenever I wanted, um, got into uh, the wrong crowds and the right crowd. I always had my good friends, you know, that didn't drink or do drugs for cover, I think. Right. Uh-huh. And then I had my so-called fun friends, the, the people that partied with me. And I got a job as a DJ at a roller rink, <laughs> and I started, <laughs> and I was like, yes! I'm on top of the world. I'm a deep at a roller rink in Grand Junction, Colorado. Now I'm going to be heard. And I was really excited because I was finally feeling like people were excited to see me and, uh, and to be around me and to get to know me. And I started to meet a lot of older people and partying it up. And, you know, there was countless nights where... Uh, I guess one in particular was I went out with a bunch of guys that were in their 20s that I met at the roller rink and had said, I'm only going to have two beers, two Coronas. Of course. And then had, (laughs) yeah, and then had so much more than that. And uh, my mom worked nights and my dad was usually home on the weekends um, and he was working throughout the week. And so my mom is working nights and she is gone. So I can go do whatever until about 2 a.m. I have to get my butt home. So one night she decides to come home a little early. And I come home and I'm just not wasted completely because I can still comprehend that my mother has been home and she is looking for me and she is not home. 
<laughs> where where can my mom be? That is the worst feeling, man. Especially yeah, when you got a, right. when you got a good buzz going. Oh, yeah, buzz kill. Like, yes, yes. So I instantly call my stepdad and uh and say, Dad, she she's gone crazy. I don't know why she's looking for me at home and I make up this huge oh. this terrible story and I uh, it did not make any sense whatsoever I just thought it did because uh first thing to go and drinking is judgment so um so uh my mom comes in the door and she's like you're drunk my mom's sober she's been sober for a long time but what, said, do, you mean, no, what, do, what do you mean by sober sober meaning that she quit sober. drinking or sober she just doesn't drink yeah sober as in she quit drinking Ah, so she knows all the tricks. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, yep. And she uh, she took one look at me and she was like, a liar. I know that you're drunk. I'm like, no, I'm not. She said, Amber, yes, you are. Do I need to call the police Ooh. and do a sobriety test? And I was like, yeah, call them. And she did. Oh. So, uh, <laughs> so, Colorado police show up and the first thing he said is, have you been drinking tonight, ma'am? And I said, yes. And then I'm instantly trying to manipulate the cop into not giving me a ticket. <laughs> um, that didn't work. And I ended up having to do community service and pay a, a pay a fee and, you know, I was, um, but I was, I remember being grateful that my mom did that. I don't remember being angry with her. I remember being grateful because I knew that it was for, that she loved me and I was just being honorary and, and, um, a manipulative liar and I knew I had done wrong. Right. And, um, but I did use it as fuel with my friends. Like, can you believe it? <laughs> you know, can you? Can you believe my mom did that? And not as, can you believe that I drank and told my mother I wasn't drinking and told her to call the police? (laughs) Blaming. Um, So so when I was a senior in high school, um, we moved to Dallas, Texas. And by this time, I'm just ticked. I don't want to leave again. My my dad has a, a position in a company um, where he has to go to different areas of the country. And I completely understand. But this is really putting a dent in my social life. So, I'm, you know, I'm a senior in high school. I have to move to Dallas, Texas. And I, I was just so fearful, just so ran with fear about not being able to fit in or not making friends and, and having to reinvent myself. I hated that. I wanted to just, Day put, right. and which is kind of understandable too. Um, and we moved there, and I started hanging out with my friend, who ended up turning into my boyfriend. And we we went to Texarkana, and we visited his grandpa, his grandma's house in Texarkana, Texas. And I remember that there was a pool party, and this was in the fall of uh, two thousand. Oh, this was in the fall of ninety nine, and <laughs> there's a pool party going on. And no one's paying attention to me. And I'm angry. And I'm drunk. And I'm selfish. And I'm self-centered. And I'm egocentric, like one of my favorite books says I am. And all of a sudden, I have this, like, grand plan to trip and fall on the concrete, you know, ground by the swimming pool. So that people will feel sorry for me. And I just do it instantly. They're like, uh, it's just a moment to moment thought. Yes, that's a great idea. Bam. bam. And, uh, and, and people were like, oh my gosh, Amber, are you okay? Oh my God. And everyone's hovering around me and I'm just loving it. You know, I just remember loving it. Just being wasted and loving this. It just tricked all these people into thinking that I'm actually hurt. I'm not really actually hurt, but that was really stupid. And I remember my boyfriend after saying, I saw you go down. Did you do that on purpose? Oh, busted. And I was like, how dare you? 
How dare you accuse me of something like that? I tripped. I mean, I was just neurotic. There was no, you know, there, there was so much manipulation. I couldn't even, I, I was believing my own lies. Right. And, um, you know, it was not even just about the alcoholism. It was, uh, it was so much selfishness and ugh, gross behavior. Um, so, and then uh, I moved to back home to Minnesota after my senior year of high school. I graduated. Um, and I decided if I, if I, I want to be an actress. So, um, so I decided that I was going to save up to go to acting school in either New York or LA. And I, um, I moved back home to Minnesota and I got, I got a waitressing job at a bar because <laughs> <laughs> that's where I was going to make a whole lot of money. And I did. I would stay after hours at the bar and I, I mean, I was drinking probably four, maybe five nights. I don't even know. As much as I possibly could. If you said liquor, I was in that corner. So, oh, yeah. um, and I, if I was, if I could drink on the drop, I would have. You know, I'm 19 and I'm on a mission to make some really fast cash. And and my whole life consisted. My my idea of fun was waking up, going to work, making lots of money, drinking for as free as possible. So I could get as drunk as possible, only to pass out, wake up, and do it all over again. Mm-hmm. And that was my life yeah. when I was 19. And the repercussions of that was at one point, I got pulled over by a cop and got a DUI. And I, it's, I, I, even with the cop, I was trying to manipulate him. He said, have you been drinking tonight? And I said, no. He said, really? What kind of new alcohol perfume are you wearing? And I'm like, that is so <laughs> I almost died at this party. This guy was trying to get into my car. You know, I, nothing made sense because drunk I don't. I don't make sense. And um, I don't think very many people do when they're drunk. No. The first thing to go is judgment. So, um, and I was drunk a lot. So, But the cop was really quite nice and didn't handcuff me and I got in the back of the car and um and then they were overfilled for they were they they couldn't hold me so I had to go home I was able to leave with a friend and uh so uh then I I have my sentencing when I'm 19 and I I I need to work so I can go to school for acting and and they tell me I can't drive and I said watch me. Well, I didn't really say that to the job. Mm-hmm. I just said, okay. But then I realized, how was I going to get to work? Mm-hmm. Um, how was I going to get around? I'm just going to drive down to Georgia where I have some friends and I'm going to wait in their line and I'm going to get a driver's license there because hopefully their computer system isn't connected and I'm going to get a job there as a waitress and everything will be fine. And that's exactly what I did. Oh Except my every- God. Really? <laughs> Yeah, in Savannah, in Savannah, Georgia. Love it. And a couple of friends out of Fort Stewart. And, and so it wasn't too far away. It was like a 45-minute drive or something. And I was like, I could live by the beach. I was a beach bum. That's what I ended up being for six months that I lived there. I did absolutely nothing except for make money, spend all the money almost that I made, and drink. And I, I remember waking up on the beach on Tybee Island, and it, the sun was blazing. You know, you wake up and you're just hungover, and you feel like you got your face hidden by a truck. Oh yeah. And uh, <laughs> and I felt that way. And there was a dog, and it wanted to lick me. I was pissed. I didn't want it to lick me, and it was hot and I was sweaty. And I'm like, what am I doing? What am I doing with my life? Like. I had intentions to go to school for acting and I'm not doing anything but partying. I need to, I need to do something. So then I got really inspired and, you know, stayed straight and on the straight and narrow for a couple of weeks enough to put some audition tapes together for some schools. And I got an acceptance in New York and, 
ended up moving to New York City, and um, I moved there the Thursday before 9-11 happened. And um, that was, I had no idea what I was what I was getting myself into. Um, I didn't, I was courageous in that, in that naivety, <laughs> um, I guess, and in, in just saying I'm going to do it. And I showed up and had my orientation for school. And I remember night, the day of 9-11, I woke up and I had like 37 messages. And I had just moved to New York on that Thursday prior. And I didn't know what the Twin Towers were. I didn't know what Wall Street Center. I didn't know. I had no idea what was going on. And I didn't care. I wanted to drink. I saw all these people crying in the street and candles being lit and people talking about family members that might be lost in the to- in the falling of the towers. And I didn't care. Right. I just cared about wanting to get drunk. And that's exactly what I did. Um, and it wasn't until a year later that it really hit me what I, what I did that night and that I saw my own selfishness and I was very confused with it. And it was that same year later in 2002 where I was standing on a corner, um, waiting for the light to turn green and for a walk sign that I realized that I'm not the center of the universe. And I was 20. But it took me a darn while. <laughs> I realized, like, all of a sudden it was like a vacuum through my head, and it said, you're not the center of the universe or something. I don't know. It was just like this resignating knowing that I was not the center of the universe. And I was so sick. I had to go home to Queens and go to bed because I realized that there's people and they have lives. And my curiosity for those people with their own lives had diminished over the years and I was sick to my stomach because I couldn't believe my selfishness and I immediately went home and went to bed but I didn't have any tools to deal with that nor did I want to share that with anyone so I continued to put myself in horrible drunken situations with not so good people and I remember I had a roommate in college that She's an angel, and she used to tease me in the street in my pajamas because I was looking for alcohol. I mean, I, I was uh, I was not in a good run. I was twenty. I was turning just about to turn twenty-one, and I was a full-blown alcoholic. Um, I didn't like to be sober. I didn't want to be sober, and. Uh, so I had a relationship and had a broken heart from the relationship, decided New York City was the problem, and he had been the problem. So I moved back to Minnesota. I, for a brief moment, was um, really sad and depressed about how I was so oblivious to what had really happened during 9-11 that I decided I was going to join the Navy, you know, and I had these grandiose ideas of being a search and rescue swimmer and that was going to be the redemption. This is and wild. Then, the Navy. <laughs> what did you say, Omar? What? This is wild. The Navy. <laughs> yes. Yes. Killing me. Yeah, but, so I, I really, I thought I could be a search and rescue swimmer. So I started working out with a um, recruiter. And then my cousin called me. He's like, Amber, what is going on with you? And at the time he was playing in the CFL. He's like, I don't understand. You went to school for acting. You've always wanted to be an actress. Your intention was to move to Los Angeles after you graduated college. You had an agent. You had a manager. I don't understand what is going on with you. And I didn't know either. And I said, I don't know. And he said, go to L.A. Don't go into the Navy. And so I did. I went to L.A. And I thought I had enough money. I didn't. I show up and don't know anyone except for one person who I went to college with. And I'm laying on his cold floor every night looking for an apartment. And I think I have enough money, but I don't. And I remember being in Santa Monica looking at a homeless man on a on a bench. Uh, and I remember thinking, I could be him. And all I could think about 
was I could be him. Like, I could be that guy on this bench and not too long from right now. And I didn't know why I had these strong thoughts of I could be him. Because I had work ethic, didn't I? Oh, why yeah. Why was I thinking? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no. nothing worse than, you know, being out at the same time that there's a homeless man on a bench. Oh, uh, right. <laughs> right. And having epiphanies. Yeah, but you could be that. Yeah, and that's something you'd have. I mean, I used, yeah, there, there was, um, there was tenacity left somewhere. So I called my friend and I, you know, I decided to ask for help. So I said, you know, I've been all around town and, I've been applying to be a waitress and no one's hiring me. And he's like, Amber, if you, you want to get a job, go to the Rainbow Room on Sunset Boulevard and tell them you want a job and be adamant and don't leave there without one. So, um, yeah, so I go to the Rainbow Room and and I I work the parking attendant and I was like, hey, I'm looking for a job. Do you know who I'd speak to? And he said the guy's, the manager's name. And I said, okay. Um, so I go in and I talk to that manager and I say, you look like so-and-so. And he says, yes, I am. And I say, well, I'm here about a job. And he said, you look like an actress. And I was like, well, I am. No, I wasn't. I went to school. <laughs> so I was not an actress. I said, well, I am. And he, he was like, I don't hire actresses. Sorry. And he went to walk away. And I said, you've been making a big mistake if you didn't hire me. And then I went to walk away. And then he, he said, be here tomorrow night at such and such time. And I got a job. I love it. I tell you what, <laughs> every single night after I knew what I was doing, I was drinking. After the training was over, I was drinking. And there were several times where those girls that I worked with at that, at that club looked out for me because there were many times where I was waiting on tables blacked out, serving and young and pizza. And having somebody shaking me on the patio, saying, Amber, wake up. What the hell is going on? Wake up. You're going to lose your job. And I, I remember going across the street um, several times a week and not just knowing I'm not going not gonna to be able to make it home tonight and sleeping in my car and having to pay an additional 20 bucks to sleep in my car and passing out in Hollywood in a parking garage with the doors open with the window open because it's too hot. And I put myself in very dangerous situations. A lot of things could have happened yeah. much worse than that what did. And um, after a few months of working there and living there, I remember going down to the beach and uh, talking to God for the first time in a very, very long time. And... And I just said, God, please help me. Something's wrong with me. I don't know what's wrong with me. And I really didn't know. But I knew something was. And then that friend I told you about earlier in the story who helped me with the Navy. Yeah. And uh, known from Montana. He had, when he had called me, he was, he was uh, working over um, on a naval ship and during the tsunami and um, and he had called me from Hawaii and told me all about it and and said uh, all of his girl problems. And I said, you know, we'd be perfect together if we lived in the same state. And he, he took that and he ran with it. And the next thing I know, I'm flying up to Washington days later um, where he lived, where he was stationed when he got back. And then moving up there from L.A., and he was my knight in shining armor, and he was my soon-to-be husband. And um, and every single night that I could, I drank in that home. And um, and he tried to get me to stop. And there were many nights that we had battles, and there were many nights that um, there was not kindness, there was not love that was absent from our relationship. And alcohol, King Alcohol won and trumped everything. And I manipulated to get through to that bottle. You couldn't tell me not to. So I started hiding it because people were starting to tell me not to. And that's all I really cared about. Um, a week later, 
I'm at a party, and my fiancé, now he's my fiancé, goes on a boat set, and um, this guy comes up to me at a party, and he's been flirting with me all night long, and um, and I'm 10 hours into drinking. By then, I should be blacked out, but I remember him coming in for a kiss, and all of a sudden, Omar, it was like a veil was lifted. And I was like, I could see so much selfishness in my behavior. And I could see that I was about to sabotage everything and anything that was good in my life. This man, this possibility of being married, this relationship being good. And I was bad. If I continued, this was not good. And I I had this how dare you kind of um, sickness, like, I was just sick. I couldn't believe I was about to kiss this man and this veil lifted up. And I believe it was God. I believe that it was a, an awakening at that moment yeah. because my will in that moment was to kiss him. And something else stepped in and woke me up. And I didn't. And I walked away and I grabbed, I, I wasn't fully conscious. See, I grabbed my friend who was a mother of three I drove her home with one eye closed, one eye open, because I'd been drinking for ten hours. Oh my somehow I, God! <laughs> somehow, somehow I made it. I made her. Um, I made it safely to her house and then to my own because I woke up the next morning, and I was alive. And I looked up and at the ceiling, and I instantly had tears because I was in remembrance of what had just happened at five o'clock in the morning, and. Um, it wasn't actually, I woke up in the afternoon, rather. <laughs> the <laughs> afternoon of November 7th um, in 2005. And, uh, and I realized what I had done. And, and I, went to the, I went to the window and I opened the blinds. And I said, God, please help me because I can't do this anymore. And it was like something was moving my feet because the day before recovery meetings, I wasn't thinking about recovery. And I looked up meetings, and uh, I went to this like old apartment building in Whidbey Island, and I knew that there was a meeting that was going to happen in two hours, and smoked a pack of cigarettes just waiting for that meeting to start because I knew if I left, I was never going to come back. And I knew that my solution was in those rooms, even though I had never really entered them myself, except for once when I was 20. And um, that was in support of somebody else. so I knew that I had to be there and I was welcomed and I was loved on and I was cared about and I was ODing on the love in those rooms and I they heard me and I felt understood and I related to their stories and I cared about them too and I couldn't believe they were even caring about me because I looked like crap and I felt like crap and I didn't feel good the whole feeling of not feeling good was so prominent in my life constantly not feeling good but they took me in as their own and I realized that we all related in those rooms and I kept coming back and I got a sponsor and I worked the steps and um so that's my that's my story before and now as a continuation of after that it was um lots of working the steps and retaliating and defiant behavior Quitting going to recovery meetings, um, getting back onto the recovery um, meetings and helping people. I mean, I did everything backwards and wrong and twisted and right. And I didn't do recovery. I still don't do recovery perfectly, but I do ask for help when I need it. And I am open. And I do believe in miracles today. And I do, I see miracles every single day and I care about people today. Whereas before I was so selfish and self-centered and a sabotager of life that I couldn't even see the moment. And I was so stuck in the future or in the past of remorse. And the moment is the only place that I know now to meet God. That's the only moment. I mean, that's everything to me. You are a miracle, Amber. <laughs> As are you. <laughs> We're all miracles. Yes, absolutely. Oh, wow, absolutely. Amber. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. That was just a powerful story. 
you. I'm so grateful you asked. I'm so grateful you asked me to tell it. Recovery is, I think it's amazing. I think it's absolutely fascinating. I think that every single day I know, every single day I learn something new, every single day I meet someone. But getting to know other people and actually caring about other people and being of service to others um, and my connection with my higher power, which I choose to call an all-loving God, and being open to being a conduit of love, that's what's kept me sober. Absolutely. So in your recovery, what is the mm-hmm. best suggestion you have ever received? The best suggestion I ever, ever received, look for miracles. I remember right, my second sponsor, she, um, she said, well, why don't you go down to the beach? You only live a mile away from it. And she's like, when you're having any kind of hardship and if you can't get a hold of me and if you're not helping other alcoholic, if you're not a service, then you need to... Um, go be meditating. And I was like, I don't know what that even means. And she's like, stop thinking and just sit and look for miracles. And I was like, what do you mean look for miracles? That God is working, she said. And I said, well, what does that look like for you? Or, you know, I probably didn't word it that, that well. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? Explain it to me. Um, and she said, uh, she said that she, in times of um, distress or worry or, um, you know, just any time that she didn't feel well, I guess, inside of her soul, she said that she would find time. And I'm like, so? Like, I'm thinking, so what? And, uh, and she's like, every single time I would find dimes. And I'm still thinking she's a little bit off of a rocker. She would find what? She said she would find dimes. Dimes. Dime. Like a, a dime. A dime. Yeah, she would a find dime. a. Oh, she would find an actual dime. Yes. Oh. Yeah. yeah. That's why. Ten cents. Yeah. <laughs> she would find ten cents on the ground. <laughs> She'd find a dime, and I just didn't think that that was that big of a deal. I'm like, is that a, that's a miracle? I guess okay. I can, I can look for it. I can look for a miracle. Then I guess you know, like, kind of thought she was nuts. So, um, but. She hadn't steered me wrong yet at all. So, um, and she was loving me. Like anything I brought to her, she was hearing it and she was letting me bring it to her. And so I, I did what she said. I did what she suggested I do. So I would go down to the beach on, on Whidbey Island in Washington state. And I would just sit there and look for my miracle. And I, um, and she'd say, talk out loud, ask God for miracles, too. And so I'd say, God, I'm looking for a miracle, you know. And I didn't know, I mean, I didn't have any idea of my higher power at that time, except for that he obviously, or she obviously loved me um, to wake me up like that. And then I obviously have a purpose on this planet. And that's not to be wasted every single day. So I'm looking for miracles and... <laughs> And I'm about to leave the beach, and all of a sudden I see that there's three birds. And I'm like, huh, I wonder if that's a miracle. And then I go back to that same beach on a different day when I'm really stressed out or angry or not getting my way about something in my life at that very opportune moment. So I'm driving down the beach, and I'm sad, and I'm mad. And I say, I need a miracle. And I see three birds. And now it's the second time I've seen three birds, and now I'm starting to get excited, and I've got these goosebumps on my arms. They're not going away. No. And I'm starting to believe a little bit. And it's something that's been constant and consistent in my recovery, that when I'm struggling, I see three birds. And um, what's funny is a couple of years ago, I was struggling financially. Um, uh, about three years ago, I was really struggling, and I... I started to see dimes. <laughs> you started to see the dimes now, huh? <laughs> yes, everywhere. Like dimes in my shoe. Um, dimes at the, the, I mean, I would, a dime would be on, stuck on the bottom of my feet. And I called my old sponsor. And I was like, this is crazy. I'm not even looking for dimes. And she's like, I wasn't looking for them either. They just showed up. Oh, wow. 
So I believe in little things like that. And I've seen bigger miracles than that. I've seen people and I've seen their lives change. And I've seen people that have been devastated by the disease of alcoholism and drug addiction and their families change with one little word infused in their body. And that's called hope. Wow. I love and, it. Um, and I, that's, that's the miracle in all of this is, is seeing that hope in people's eyes and that transformation of people's lives and those loved ones and the, the ripple effect that it has um, on the world. It's not just even, yeah. No question about it. Expect a miracle. Yeah, absolutely. Walking, talking, breathing miracles. Absolutely. I love it. So if you could give our listeners only one suggestion, what would it be? I would say to reach down and find enough curiosity and enough passion and enthusiasm to help someone as much as you would want to be helped if you have recovery. Um, inside of that, to help those who need help because maybe if you spend too much time on someone who doesn't want the help, you might miss out on an opportunity to help several people that actually, you know, want it. Did I say that right? I hope I said that right. I don't know that was, <laughs> that, whole, that whole statement was gold. That was beautiful. Okay. Uh, man, I love it. It's, oh man, that's all, that's what this whole program in a, in a nutshell is all about. It's not for people who need it. There are millions who need it. It's yeah. for people who want it and are willing to do the work. Absolutely. Man, this is gold. I love it. Oh, Amber, this is awesome. Hey, thank you. Ah, this has been great. Great, great. This has been. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Any more interesting questions? They're fantastic. This show is fun. Well, the question, <laughs> there, just one, just one. I want to oh, know about, okay. I want to know about what you do today. Tell us about your recovery routine today that keeps you clean and sober. Okay. I have a pretty good routine, which I hated that word years ago, um, even just a couple of years ago. So my life today looks a little bit different. Um, so I guess I'll just tell you about a regular day, um, which to me is very exciting. Uh, so I wake up and I immediately say my prayer for the day, which is, um, God, please let me be a conduit of your love today. Please show me how to be that. And then I get a glass of water or a Diet Coke, depending. <laughs> 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 and I, um, I, uh, I start to uh, write or look at different things that I've written. And I begin my morning meditation by by creatively um, creating art around what I've written on different programs. And, um, and then I, yeah, get ready for work. And uh, um, I work downtown in Minneapolis. So I, I'm always on a rush. I'm like rushing all the time because I get so caught up in my creativity. And I get off work. I either go to a meeting or I go speak somewhere or I go, to where I know that there are people who are looking for help. And that is a routine for me. And um, I'm available, like you said earlier. And um, constantly working on my book also. So I fit that in in the evening hour. It's calm. And, um, but I have this uh, vibrant energy for life, for living today. So you're writing a book too? Yeah. Um, Can't Keep a Sober Girl Down. Of course. Is, uh, is the book and it's 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 gonna I'm gonna keep it simple I tried to make it complicated I wrote it all crazy when I was in New York and I just I ended up taking out everything that was complex <laughs> and it's really simple and I'm very excited I, I showed the cover I went up um, north for vacation over the 4th of July with my cousin and I showed her the cover of uh, can't keep a sober girl down and she cried and um, and I realized that I just needed to keep it simple and and um, get it out as quickly as I could. 
I would love this book to be in a female's arms and be like, this is part of who I am. And this girl gets it. And we get it together. Like, I want that to happen. I love it. Amber, this has been awesome. This has been absolutely awesome. Thank you so much again. Wow. (laughs) Thank you. We killed it. Yay. (laughs) So listen, (laughs) I know you should be. I'm excited too. So again, thanks for joining us. And the way we say goodbye here in Costa Rica is Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Awesome. Pura Vida. How do you say it? Do you think really fast? You don't need to change it. That's it. (laughs) Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.